This is part two concerning the inwardness of your voice, the inward conversation, as I tried to say earlier, among voices within your inward oratory, the place inside you where the real work of your life is going on. We know this to be true, uh, or at least we are um, told that this is true through uh, the epistles of St. Paul, where there is an astonishing degree of inwardness relevant to the struggle between demand and uh, natural desire that creates the kind of um, um, uh, torch, the, the, the incendiary explosion of, uh, of personal need and despair and abandonment and uh, dissatisfaction, which leads up to an openness to the, to the, uh, to the gospel message of, of, of absolutely uh, total engagement on the part of God unconditionally to his unmerited um, uh, creatures on earth, rather unmeriting. Now, the inwardness of your own self is the voice that is constantly struggling to be heard and yet is very seldom heard and is uh, not only checkmated by um, tremendous inner pressures uh, but great outward pressures. And the case I want to uh, focus on today, um, which is really a, a very striking and for me a very important case, is the case of William Hale White. William Hale White uh, was an English, I guess we would now call him a literary figure, primarily a novelist, who died in 1913. And he was unhappily married, though faithfully married, and uh, very supportingly married to Harriet Arthur from a young age. And he had grown up in the very heart of the evangelical and particularly the Calvinist or dissenting subculture of England in Bedford in the uh, early uh, first half of the uh, 19th century. And he was rooted in his religion, uh, of which there were very important positive features, particularly the teaching of the grace of God and the uh, irrepressible libidinous id and uh, inhering rebellion and ego of the self, for which the great Pauline gospel, as William Hale White would have referred to it, uh, was a natural and tailor-made remedy. But in its train, and we've often spoken of this, came a tremendous tilt towards Phariseeism, which White was keenly aware of. He chucked it uh, in a celebrated expulsion when he was expelled from uh, seminary for holding supposedly heterodox views on the Bible, which in fact he didn't hold. But he was treated so badly that this was the turning point in his life. And he, after a variety of false starts and terrible late adolescent sufferings, he entered on a career as a civil servant, ultimately with the Admiralty, <clears throat> and became a, we would call him a, an assistant undersecretary, finally, to the Admiralty in a time when the uh, British Navy was experimenting with submarines and all sorts of new um, uh, weapons. And uh, so he became a kind of procurer for the, for the British Navy and went in faithfully every single day from his various places he lived, mostly south of London. And uh, he worked out his, uh, his life. He had this external persona of a very shy and retiring, very dutiful and very faithful and very smart <clears throat> civil servant, but he led an actual double life. And this is where we come to the question of the voice and you and me. 
at night and sometimes very early in the mornings. It usually was actually at 4.30 in the morning, but it could be late at night. His wife was an invalid. She had a form of advancing sclerosis, and uh, she was a wonderful and dear, loving, supportive person, but uh, they did not have any real marital relationship for many, many years, although um, children were born initially who are a very interesting study in second-generation uh, or third-generation Christianity and achievement from these extraordinary people. But he would rise very early and sometimes stay up very late after an exhausting day commuting a long distance into town and putting his wife to bed and making dinner. I mean, he took on everything. And he was a hero, but a suppressed hero, needless to say. He was not about to have a girlfriend or uh, involve himself in any kind of extramarital adventures uh, because of the kind of upbringing he had had and the kind of person he turned out to be. So he through his voice, his inner voice of intense despair in the face of a crushing, impossible and irreducible and inescapable box canyon of life, he thrust himself into a secret persona whom he called Mark Rutherford. And uh, this was his, uh, his Superman Clark Kent situation. And he wrote a series of six novels in the 1880s and early 90s, which... The first two are about a character called Mark Rutherford, who is definitely William Hale White, and this has all been worked over, and there's a tremendous amount of literature, not enough literature, on this sadly neglected figure of profound Christian uh, and universal inwardness. But nevertheless, he produced six novels. He told no one, and his wife died uh, of her disease eventually with great love and kindness from her husband having never read a single one of them, although she did know, I think, at the end that he had written at least some of the six novels or novels he he was writing. And his children never read them and didn't know until later. And the world knew him as Mark Rutherford. And in the novels of Mark Rutherford, you find an inward voice that is um, so associative, as Philip Wiley had said in the earlier uh, podcast in this two-parter, and are, uh, there is such a, um, a, a powerful associative intelligence at work who is so deeply engaged with and determined to find some kind of breakthrough in relationship to the question of God and ultimacy, notwithstanding a diagnostic and painfully caustic view of his own inability to express himself, except in these secret novels, which they, in fact, were functionally until when he died. He was later on finally known as William Hale White, uh, the uh, author of Mark Rutherford, but that was much, much later. And his old age comprises an extraordinary second marriage that is really worth studying. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the double life of William Hale White, in which a voice of of, of very uh, great talent. I, I would call it a voice verging on. I'm not sure whether the word genius is is absolutely the right word for Mark Rutherford slash William Hale White, but for my, to me, he functions as a genius, the genius of the place, loci. I find his, um, his inward voice that is expressed in his novels, which are in order, the autobiography of Mark Rutherford, the deliverance of Mark Rutherford, then uh, the revolution in Tanner's Lane, followed by three very powerful novels about young women in crisis. Uh, one is called um, uh, 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 Miriam Schooling. Uh, one is called Catherine Furze. 
Z-E, and one is called Clara Hopgood, his last, which actually stopped him writing because uh, there were charges of immorality uh, regarding a section of it, uh, and you'll have to judge for yourself. They're not in print in this country except through internet editions, but I haunt old bookshops, especially in uh, the UK when I'm there, and there are very few left. They're all going out of business or turning into internet operations purely. In the old days of going to an English country town and rummaging through piles of old books and finding something wonderful and special and exciting and surprising are gone. Let me tell you, I speak from experience. <clears throat> there are a few such places left, but the a fraction of what they were just five to ten years ago. Now, <clears throat> the voice of Mark Rutherford, this inward voice of this hidden man who had enormous emotion, great intelligence, and a tremendous need to work out the problems of life in religious Christian terms that were not the kind that, that were in, involved in an enlarging of the vision of the um, very um, pharisaical, highly judgmental, and ultimately bankrupt form of evangelicalism with which he grew up, although he knew people along the way who were the real thing, which was tremendously important, unlike James Gould Cousins, who seems never, to my knowledge, with the exception in print of C.S. Lewis, to have encountered somebody who was the real McCoy. And uh, Mark Rutherford did meet, fortunately, in his 20s. He met, uh, came under the influence of a Welsh dissenting clergyman, uh, a Bible-preaching clergyman with a slight tinge towards Unitarianism, which was typical in that day. And if you read the sermons of the man, they're profoundly gospel sermons, a man named Caleb Morris. And this man did preserve for William Hale White the possibility that it would be possible to preach the gospel in human guise. And so his books always leave open the possibility of the real thing while being very wry and at times funny and even ironic and scorching about the nature of evangelicalism while always ultimately looking for that which is deep, true, and powerful in the gospel of grace. Now, I'm going to read a section of uh, of the revolution in Tanner's Lane in which you see how the author brings together so many themes and his understanding of human nature is astonishingly deep and layered and uh, archaeological. And in this passage called The Revolution in Tanner's Lane, <clears throat> a printer, this is about 1810, somewhere around there, named Zechariah Coleman <clears throat> has uh, been involved in a political demonstration of a certain kind and has been uh, beaten up. And he is a dissenter and a devout Calvinist uh, dissenter, a young man, uh, and he is uh, a very sincere and faithful Christian. And he has been brought, being brought home by a very handsome upper-class gentleman named Major Maitland, who was on his side and rescued him from almost death and is bringing home the beaten up and uh, terribly abused a liberal slash radical dissenting Calvinist printer, Zechariah Coleman, who's a doll, but we'll find out about his tragic life later in the book. And in the revolution in Tanner's Lane, the date of which is 1890, the book, uh, Zechariah Coleman's being brought back to his young wife, who he's only been married to three or four months, who's impossible, and we learn this, a very bad choice to say the least, and he's being brought back to her. And she's... Uh, she thinks that she's getting ready to uh, have tea, which is the evening meal on a Sunday afternoon, um, 
and usually before church, but sometimes after church. And uh, she is taken by surprise by both her husband, whom she really doesn't respect and like, Zechariah Coleman, and this surprising visit of the major. And I'm going to read this little sketch and then comment on it. This is the inward voice of the man whom nobody knew, William Hale White, known as Mark Rutherford. The hackney coach drove up to the house in Rosamond Street, where Zachariah dwelt on the first floor. He was too weak to go upstairs by himself. This is page 19, by the way. And he and his friend therefore walked into the front room together. It was in complete order, although it was so early in the morning. Oh, I was wrong. It's not in the afternoon. It's in the morning. It was in complete order, although it was so early in the morning. Everything was dusted. Even the lower fire bar had not a speck of ashes on it, and on the hob already was a saucepan in which Mrs. Coleman proposed to cook the one o'clock dinner. On the wall were portraits of Sir Francis Burdett, Major Cartwright, and the mezzotint engraving of Sadler's Bunyan. Two black silhouettes, one of Zechariah and the other of his wife, were suspended on each side of the mantelpiece. Now, I must interrupt, dear listener, and say that Rutherford's style is very famous, uh, in fact. D.H. Lawrence, André Gide, William Dean Howells, and George Orwell absolutely thought that the style of this particular book and the others, but they focused on this one, uh, Orwell did, was among the greatest stylistic achievements in the English language because it was so simple. Notice how simple the language is. Notice how many there are of, of place marks to show what kind of a home this is, if you know who Major Cartwright was, and if you know what Sadler's Bunyan is, and that's easy to look up. And uh, in a very, very few words that are beautifully well chosen, and what the Germans would call dick, thick, thick words, short, thick, powerful, simple, evocative words, he conveys enormous power and ultimately tremendous dissection of actual characters. Now I return. Mrs. Coleman was busily engaged in the bedroom, but hearing the footsteps, she immediately entered. She was slightly taken aback at seeing Zachariah in such a plight, and uttered a little scream. Notice, slightly taken aback and little, but I, I, I shouldn't interrupt. I'll continue without interruption. She was slightly taken aback at seeing Zechariah in such a plight, and uttered a little scream. But the bottle-green stranger making her a profound bow, arrested her. "'Pardon me, my dear madam, there is nothing seriously the matter. Your husband has had the misfortune to be the victim of a most blackguardly assault, but I am sure that, under your care, he will be all right in a day or two, and with your permission, I take my leave.' Mrs. Coleman was irritated. The first emotion was not sympathy— absolutely the first was annoyance at being seen without proper notice by such a fine-looking gentleman she had however no real cause for vexation under this head she had tied a white handkerchief over her hair fastening it under her chin as her manner was when doing her morning's work and she had on her white apron but she was trim and faultless and the white handkerchief did but set off her black hair and marble complexion her second emotion too was not sympathy Zechariah was at home at the wrong time. Her ordinary household arrangements were upset. He might possibly be ill, and then there would be a mess and confusion. The thought of sickness was intolerable to her, because it, quote, put everything out, end of quote. Rising up at the back of these two emotions came, haltingly, a third, when she looked her husband in the face. She could not help it, and she did really pity him. I am sure it is very kind of you, she replied. 
Zechariah had as yet spoken no word, nor had she moved towards him. The stranger was departing. "'Stop!' cried Zechariah. "'You have not told me your name. I am too faint to say how much I owe you for your protection and kindness.' "'Nonsense! My name is Maitland, Major Maitland, Number 1A, Albany. Goodbye.' He was at the top of the stairs when he turned round and, looking at Mrs. Coleman, observed musingly, "'I think I'll send my doctor, and, if you will permit me, we'll call in a day or two.' She thanked him. He took her hand, politely pressed it to his lips, and rode off in the coach which had been waiting for him. "'What has happened, my dear? Tell me all about it,' she inquired as she went back into the parlour, with just the least colour on her cheek." and perceptibly a little happier than she was five minutes before. She did nothing more than put her hand on his shoulders, but he brightened immediately. He told her the tale, and when it was over, desired to lie down and to have some tea. Emotion number two returned to Mrs. Coleman immediately. Tea, at that time, the things having all been cleared away and washed up, she did not, however, like openly to object, but she did go so far as to suggest that perhaps cold water would be better, as there might be inflammation. Zechariah, although he was accustomed to give way, begged for tea, and it was made ready, but not with water boiled there. She would not again put the copper kettle on the fire, as it was just cleaned, but she asked to be allowed to use that which belonged to the neighbor downstairs, who kept the shop. The tea-things were replaced when Zechariah had finished, and his wife returned to her duties, leaving him sitting in the straight-backed Windsor chair, looking into the grate, and feeling very miserable. Now, this passage uh, covers a an understanding of the, this is Paul speaking, of the human situation that is really quite remarkable. Uh, initially, we've had a terrible situation that has uh, involved Zechariah being almost killed by a Tory mob when his very strong Whig and radical Whig uh, conv uh, uh, convictions came out because he refused to take off his hat to a royal uh, personage who was passing in a cortege on the main road. And noticed that he has married a woman who obviously is absolutely, totally threatened by any kind of interruption of any kind. She has it sussed, as they say in England. She has a way of life, and she's probably only about 20, in fact. She has a way of life so completely ordered. Her anxieties have so completely ordered themselves in what we would call the to put it into category, the sort of hyper-Protestant uh, uh, fear of the body and fear of dirt and uh, need to control that is characteristic of this kind of a person, but it's also characteristic of the person before she met the system. The system and the person interact. As we're going to find out, the system interacted very differently with her husband. And the real problem about her husband's being... Uh, hurt is it puts her system out it puts everything out um but she stopped uh, and oh uh, you also see what kind of a play francis burdett major cartwright and saddler's bunyan these would have been sort of characteristic like in a german household at a certain point in the 19th century you always would have had luther um in uh, in in seinem familienkreis in the circle of his family you'd always have luther playing a guitar surrounded by katarina and the children uh, it was sort of a, a kind of a or you'd have 
Jesus Christ, the light of the world in many Victorian houses, the Holman Hunt picture that you know of Jesus as the light of the world, which Dickens always talked about. And many, many others, certain things that you had just today on your iPod, you have certain things or today you have certain books that you might be reading or certain things that would characterize the sort of cultural attitudes with which you are surrounded. They are surrounded by the attitudes of a particular form of of a very strong, still a Protestant free church nonconformity or um, um, non-Anglican evangelicalism. <clears throat> and notice the silhouettes of her and his wife are black uh, on the mantelpiece. And she gives a little scream. She's surprised to see her husband. But notice the third emotion, not the first and the second, is pity. Uh, actually, there are four. Uh, the first emotion is annoyance uh, that she's been seen by this handsome man. She has uh, she, her vanity before the handsome male is the number one emotion. And that is very, that's Wiley-esque. In other words, her instinctual female um, sense of being uh, uh, caught not looking good is uh, not wearing the right dress as you might see. That, that is what this says. Her, her annoyance at being seen without proper notice by such a fine looking gentleman. Her second uh, emotion is that she's upset about the, the orderly plans that she has made are now being interrupted by her husband's arrival with uh, this illness. And then the, this, uh, this wound, not illness, you know, I, was, I was, I'll never forget, I first heard a value-free language years and years ago at Grace Church <clears throat> There was a, uh, in New York City, where we opened the church in the morning, there was an incident one morning when a a, a homeless man came in and uh, damaged uh, something in the church. And uh, I think he tried to lay his hands on a a, a woman who was praying in the church. It was a terrible thing, and the police had to be called. And I don't think he was caught. I think he got away. I was in the building, but not till afterwards did I get the alarm and went down and the rector secretary was there and she, she says she said to me Paul you must come into the church there's been an accident now today we would probably say an incident uh, what had been happened there had been a crime committed a man whatever um, reasoning had come in and uh, damaged a very valuable piece of church furniture and then laid his hands tried to assault a woman in the church and I, I said I said to the woman I used her name and I said accident and she said well we had to call the police and, and a complaint has been filed but she used the word accident you know now we we never use the word a crime we say incident or you know uh, and um He's been involved in an accident, Zechariah Coleman, and her plans have been upset. And third, haltingly, she has a little bit of sympathy. She's not completely without being, as we'll later find out, she has a very sad end. Mrs. Coleman comes to a very, very sad end. I don't believe we ever hear her name. It's like Arthur Winter Jr. She's only referred to as Mrs. Coleman or my dear. I don't believe she's referred to by Christian name, although I may be wrong, Nick, on that. Now, she's... um. That's the third emotion. And the fourth, as it turns out, is most profoundly related to the first. She's attracted to Major Maitland. And we're going to find that against all her hardest, strongest efforts to discipline herself, she continues to be attracted to Major Maitland. And that becomes a huge issue. Plus, she is very, very squeamish about sexuality, as occurs in a very powerful episode later when she looks into through a window and sees her husband and other people watching a French woman do a kind of ballet pas de deux, which in her mind is the most voluptuous and horrible, dreadful uh, approach of sensuality. But it's perfectly, it's with a whole bunch of people and it's a very normal thing and there's nothing remotely salacious about it. But she sees it that way as she looks through a window. But she's transfixed by the ballet dancer. 
and uh, she's so transfixed that I think she she allows herself to stay in the rain and is completely soaked through, which shows where her real interests lie. Well, her first, her second, her third, and then finally the fact that she's utterly charmed by this attractive single man whom she knows nothing about, and we later find out a lot about him. And... um, she then goes into the parlor, and notice she doesn't want to even use hot water to sort of upset her arrangements because uh, he desperately needs tea, uh, but she thinks maybe we, we can just give him some water. Uh, have you ever been in a place where you say, well, what can you offer me? And, and you know, you have all these different things, and uh, well, I'm the, the host, and I have white wine and red wine, and we have hard liquor for those who wish it, and we've got all, we can make all sorts of things, and we're all ready. And these very health nut type people say, oh, I'll just have a glass of water. I just want to throw up. I mean, good Lord, who do they think they are asking for water? I mean, what kind of a person would ask for water at six o'clock in the afternoon when they're given all these other things? Now, you'll, you may say, well, Paul, you just don't realize pe- people may want water. Okay, I accept it. But anyway, she does, she certainly would be thrilled with that request. Mrs. Coleman is only wants him to ask for water. And finally, she, she, she still finds a casuistical way to go downstairs and get hot water from the neighbor so she herself doesn't have to boil it. Now, what kind of a woman is this for poor Zechariah Coleman to be married to? We're going to find out in the next three pages when he describes this extraordinarily profound inner mourning and loss when he realizes in this inner dialogue, he says, about how he has been, uh, he, he has allowed himself to be deceived and married this impossible person who has not an element of giving in her entire body. She has a few, but not as far as he's concerned. And, uh, she has not an iota of generosity of any kind, physical, spiritual, emotional, intellectual, practical, not an iota of generosity or actual feeling towards him, except a tiny little bit of dutiful compassion. And this is played out. This is played out very powerfully in the first half of the revolution in Tanner's Lane. Well, I read that to you, and I recommend this book very, very deeply. It is in a modern edition uh, with uh, the Hogarth Press in London. Uh, it's in a 1984 edition, but it's not in print in this country. Don't get an internet edition. Get the uh, get the um, Hogarth Press edition, which you can get cheaply over the internet um, with Claire Tomalin's uh, introduction, <clears throat> because uh, the internet editions often have typographical errors, and they're not laid out in the format in which they are properly meant to be read. Now, this, uh, it may be on Gutenberg, though, I'm not sure it is, this particular book of Rutherford's. Now, the inner voice of this man is so interesting because his entire life he hid it. And uh, and yet you think about him, you know, you could say, my gosh, I don't really want to be like Mark Rutherford. <laughs> he he kept a double life. He didn't want to be, he was so shy and he's so convicted by his profound insights. And he really does understand the psychosexual in a Victorian context, late Victorian con- uh, setting, the psychosexual and theological and religious and rapacious, hypocritical character of the human world at such a deep level that these are crushing insights. And so his way of dealing with it was to not connect the uh, William Hale White persona of the man that went into London every day and had children and had a normal, apparently buttoned up life, and the deep, uh, concentrated and distilled, highly emotional and yet deeply intellectual wisdom of the genius who got up in the morning at 4.30 and poured himself out on the page. And uh, that is why his uh, case is so interesting. His voice, I'm not going to judge this poor man. Years later, he was with a Dorothy... Um, uh, Vernon, Horace Vernon White, uh, became White. He was with the woman whom he married at age 78, I believe, and I believe she was uh, 
I believe she was 35 years younger than he, and uh, he had been a widower for many years, and she was a single person, a fan, and they married, and it's a very touching and important story. You really ought to read it, and it's all written up in a, a book called The Groombridge Diary, but by Dorothy later, who died, I think, <clears throat> not till the 1960s, but Dorothy um, uh, at one point uh, got him to take her at a very in his early 80s i think around or 70 very very elderly person mid 70s around downtown london where near the admiralty and he pointed out to her uh, just happened to point out near st james park and they were going through the tourist area of london and he pointed out oh he said that's the door the the door i the side door i used to enter every single morning for 40 years or whatever it was and um he paused for a minute and he said, you know, I, I haven't been back uh, since. And it was like 20 years or 18 years he hadn't gone back to his parish. And, uh, and he paused and then he said the most interesting thing. He said, you know, I never liked it. <laughs> he was there for 40 years, spent his entire waking time, William Hale, right there. And the result of all that effort and work, and he was very successful and highly regarded. And actually a beautiful testimonial was written to him that I think was quite unusual at the end of his service. And uh, he said, I never liked it. I mean, what about you? I mean, do you like what you're, I mean, the William Hale White of you, you know, where do you live? I mean, do you like what you're doing? The actual fact of the matter, and this is my experience, I'm simply speaking out of my experience of, you know, 40 years of doing this kind of work, first as a seminarian and parishes, and even before that as a kind of proto-seminarian, uh, and right up to recent times in uh, in, in Washington, D.C. and Maryland, I... Um, how many men, and I'm think, talking about men here, I'm speaking about men that I've known who are professional men, often successful men, or men who've really put their shoulder to the wheel, like Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> um, I remember that great last line of America? Um, and uh, uh, they don't like what they do. I mean, they say they do, and occasionally there were moments initially, but how many men that I've known actually can honestly look at me and tell me, and they have, said, you know, to be honest with you, I don't like what I do at all. It's a game, or I play at it, or I, one time I liked it, or I used to enjoy this, but when it comes to the politics and all the backroom stuff and the hail fellow well met and stuff, I always have to look at my rear to watch that I'm not being attacked. And when it comes to the actual personnel side, that's what people in, in leadership will often tell you. They like the actual thing they were doing. They enjoyed working for the university, or they enjoyed working for this Ellie Mosnery institution, the aims of which they embraced personally. But what they hated was the personnel side. They'll always say, oh, well, you know what I hated? I hated having to fire people. I, nothing more worse that I hated than the sort of, the, you know, running the car wash was dealing with the people because there was so much sin and so much jockeying and so much pride and so many sensitivities and so much transference and projection. I never liked it, said William Hale White. Now, what do we remember about William Hale White? We remember about his inner voice. And his inner voice is Mark Rutherford in Revolution in Tanner's Lane, who really understands the kind of people he grew up with and lived with in the church, let alone outside the church, as you'll see if you read the book. The book is about all kinds of people, but with particular interest in Christians and the kind of way they get flummoxed by the plumbing going in the wrong way because of the law, and yet always holding out the hope, as he does in every one of his novels, usually embodied in one particular character in The Revolution in Tanner's Lane. That character is the Reverend Thomas, or is it John Thomas Bradshaw, there is a legitimate parish clergyman, a wonderful uh, preacher 
who is uh, adulated and loved, and he is the real thing. And you'll always find this, unlike many other sort of debunkers, uh, William Hale White, Mark Rutherford, always held out hope that it was possible to be a Christian and to be integrated with the gospel of grace. And that's why his books, for those who are interested in religion, are always such an unusual mix, because they, they, they show up the nonsense and the really hellacious, mean malice that uh, the hypocritical law aspect of Christianity seems to often create in people, or at least attract a certain kind of part of a person that can be so censorious and mean. But you have it in secular people just as much, just in a different form. But he also always out, you know, the iris demand. He he holds out the possibility of the real thing, of the real possibility, William Cooper type people. Well, that's the uh, point of Mark Rutherford, the inward voice. And yet, look at at you. I I, I love this man. I want to... uh, Embrace him, but you know, if you'd actually sat, if you were talking to him right now, he wouldn't really want to talk to you. He'd be nice and he'd be capable of tenderness, but he was so shy and so withdrawing and so utterly lacking in confidence and such a sort of abashed person through all these mostly religious influences on his life, coupled with his own squeamish shyness and to some extent puritanism about all sorts of things. He probably would have found it very hard to carry on a conversation with you, except under very strong boundaries and limitations. But in his books, and specifically the novels. He wrote a great many other things, and I guess I've had the privilege of reading most of them, not every one. I still haven't read the Spinoza, the intro to the Spinoza Ethics, which I'm told is very important. And there's one or two other short stories that were have not been published in collections that I haven't read, but I think I've read most of what he wrote, and certainly the novels many times over, and the journals. And uh, I think I want to say that the inward voice is of a person of such profound interest and power that that's what you want to hold on to. Now, it may be that you, I may be talking to someone who's like a William Hale White, who's shy and withdrawn, but has a rich inward life, or I may be talking to somebody who's all out there and sort of shares everything, and really, if you knew deep down, has a very mean-spirited, contemptuous, and buttoned-up, purse-judgmental, hostile little life inside. You never know, and I uh, really can't know that. I know that in myself, the part of me that is longing to come out, something is trying to be heard. You find this in the great... uh, in the great uh, creators. Something is crying to be heard, a voice that is trying to be heard. Almost everyone has a voice of tremendous conversational value and interest because we're all the same deep down. None of us is really better than anyone else. There are certain changes in the way that it's balanced or the way that it's the shelf has been um, perched or buttressed against the, 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 the wall. You know, I'm looking at a bookshelf here in my study and, uh, uh, I haven't pushed, there are too many books on the shelf now to straighten it out, and yet it, it really is about three inches too far out than it should, so all the books are slightly at an angle. I feel like one of those tourist attractions, you know, they used to have in California, you know, where you all looked like you were walking at a 120 degree angle or something. Well, um, everybody's in a different angle of weightings uh, and uh, of of uh, balance, and yet deep down the fundamental rules are the same, and this tremendous voice, when it is allowed to come out, as it least it was on paper by William Hale White in these six remarkable novels. This is what I hope can happen to you and for you. And as always, it can only really come out 
Finally, in the presence of some compassion, usually on yourself, at one level he had to have believed that his views were important enough for him to forgive his own shyness and overly disciplined tightness and give him permission to sit down and write these novels, at least on his own time. And that's what you need. You need to know that your voice is worth hearing, even if it actually can't come out in the obvious way. It is coming out, uh, it can come out in the unobvious way. And that's my uh, podcast for today, which uh, is entitled Inwardness Part 2. I've actually got one cooking, and I may record very quickly another one on this time on a verse from St. Matthew's Gospel. Thank you for listening, and God bless.